Welcome to the Surveyor Hub podcast with me, Marion Ellis, a chartered surveyor, coach, business mentor, and founder of the Surveyor Hub community. Each week on this podcast, I speak to surveyors and people in the industry about their careers, business journeys, and day-to-day work. Listen to their real-life stories, step into their shoes, and leave feeling connected to the conversation. So today, I'm delighted to welcome to the podcast, Peter Bolton-King. Hello, Peter. Hello, Marianne. Now, we are both known, I think, for talking a lot, you more than me. So let's have a little code where I'll put my hand up if I need to interrupt and you go on too much. Okay. I can't, be- I can't believe you start off by saying I talk too much. I'm sure nobody listening to this would have would agree with you for one moment. Well, you know, sometimes there are some people I listen to and they're a bit hypnotic. You know, you sort of tune in and you sometimes you don't always hear what they're saying, but you, there's just this like noise that comes out and you tune in. But I'm sure this is going to be an engaging conversation. And so for, for we get a lot of listeners who are students or trainees and who may not have come across you before and the great work that you've done. So perhaps let's start at the beginning, as uh, the what was her name, Maria von Trapp said, start at the very beginning. Tell us a bit about your career and how you got started, because it was back in the 70s, wasn't it? It was. Most people think you still use the slate and sort of uh, scrawl on the scrawl on it for, to write stuff. You're right, uh, Marion. It was uh, September. I was trying to work out. I used to remember. I think it was September the 14th or something in 1973. Believe it or not. Uh, so that's rather a long time ago. Oh, how, why did I? Why did I fall into this profession? I have to say, to some extent, I took an easy option out because. Putting it politely, school career advice back in the 1970s wasn't exactly um, brilliant. And uh, the one thing I did know about was um, surveying an estate agency because my father was a, was a surveyor back in Hertfordshire. And, you know, I, like I'm sure a lot of children, I'd occasionally accompany him around empty houses doing surveys and that sort of thing. It was something I, I understood a little bit about. So I made the decision that I was going to start that. Uh, the next thing is, I'm not sure if I should really say this, but back in those those days, uh, people just won't believe this, but there was a clause in his own partnership agreement that allowed an existing partner to bring one of their children just into the business. Uh, you know, I, I, it never happened, thank goodness, because I took the decision that if I was going to do this and if I was going to succeed, then I wanted to do it on my own. And I didn't want to do it uh, just because daddy was in it, if you like. So I quite unusually, I think, for the day, decided that I'd start away from home. And there was a reason for that. And that's because uh, my dad had had some dealings with a company in Warwickshire. So I took the the jump and, uh, and wrote to the senior partner, not expecting to hear anything, and found myself then being invited to an interview up in uh, in in Warwickshire, and that's where I started. So that was a long way away from home as a, as a young lad of eighteen. And I think the other interesting thing, and I know you're going to put your hand up to shut me up in a minute, but uh, the other interesting I think then is that probably people don't quite understand it that in those days there weren't the corporate estate agents. The the vast majority, if not all of them, I suspect, certainly outside the big cities, were old-style general practice firms of chartered surveyors. And therefore, if you wanted to rise up the ranks within a firm, you had to become a chartered surveyor. It was many years later before non-chartered surveyors estate agents were up and running. And in those days, you either went to university, a limited number of universities, to be fair, who offered courses that would get you then um, through into the into becoming um, a chartered surveyor, or you did what I did, in fact, which was to start work to study in the evenings and the weekends on a what was called a correspondence course with the old College of Estate Management down in Reading. And then as part of that, I also went to some evening classes up in Birmingham and that sort of thing. And then once a year, you travelled down to London and you sat the Royal Institution of Chartered Surveyors annual exams and you either passed it or you failed it. Um, so, of course, you can't do it like that anymore. There, there's no RICS exams, uh, you know, really, without unless you've got massive amounts of experience, you have to go and take an accrediting course. So it was a different way of studying in those days. And I paused for breath. <laughs> I wasn't going to interrupt you there. I was just, my hand was just waving, waving about while I was, um, I was just sat. Uh, really interesting there, because there's quite a few surveyors or younger surveyors I come across that are entering the family business. 
we've got lots of surveyors who are more mature of years and are thinking about what are they going to do with their future and what they're going to do with this business that they've now got and, and leaving a legacy. And I see that more and more, you know, younger surveyors coming into work with, with their, their parents, typically their, their father. So it's interesting that you chose not to do that and to go your own, own way and rebel uh, against the norm, perhaps. I think perhaps there's also a difference between a, a perhaps a family firm that was, and I know you and I know loads and loads of family estate mm. agents, family surveying firms, with perhaps one or two offices, a small number of offices. I think that's it's quite different than I think to that to my dad, who was one of a number of partners in what was even then quite a large firm down in Hertfordshire with many branches. So it's not as though it was a family firm, and I think that's one of the differences. Mm. And you mentioned studying part-time evenings and, and those kind of things, you know, and I see so many surveyors doing that even now. Yeah. And I always admire people who go through that. The, you know, I still remember when I was going through my APC and I had to study really, really hard and my brain felt like it was going to explode and I would break my, my time up into 20 minute chunks just so I could I could get through. And whenever I see anyone on a anyone's CV, even sort of years later that they studied to do something part-time, I always I always admire people because it's it's really hard when you've got even now so, you know, when you've got um family commitments, work is really hard anyway, and then you're committing to studying on top. It's um I always admire people who who've got the courage I'll, I'll spot on. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree with you. And I'm not trying to sort of blow me on trumpet on this, but the fact is, is that unless you were prepared to study really hard, when you still had to keep up, you know, as you say, work during the day, and you had to hit, well, I don't think they weren't, they weren't the same targets as they were, there are these days. But of course, very often these days, you know, you've got horrible targets you have to meet all the time. But I'll be honest with you, there's only one reason, well, there's two reasons, actually, I actually succeeded at the end of the day. One was, and this is the main thing, I met my then girlfriend about nine months out. No, it wasn't even that, six months after I started work. And uh, my, that then girlfriend then became my wife and we're still together all these years later. But to be honest, you know, Laura was responsible for keeping my nose to the grindstone. I only had a Sunday off and a Tuesday evening off. Otherwise, you had no alternative but to study all of the rest of the time. And uh, I don't think she'd get away with it these days because I remember lying on the floor and uh, her, I'll say, hypothetically kicking me because I just completely failed to get into my brain that Donahue versus Stevens were, Stephen, I've got it wrong now, Donahue versus Stevenson was all about the snail and the ginger beer bottle, 18, mm. whatever. And, you know, to be honest, she just pushed and pushed and pushed me. And if she hadn't been doing that, I don't think I would have made it. So you're absolutely right. I agree with you. When I look at people's CVs and that sort of thing, if they've, there are other things I, I'm interested in as well, obviously, clearly, uh, which gives you a, an, an interesting feel for them. But certainly, if they're prepared to study and push themselves forward whilst holding down a, a full-time job, etc., all credit to them. And I'd encourage people to still do that because... I am sure, I have to admit, actually, before I say this, that I did actually fail my part one of the RICS exams. I had to retake it. I then, glad, thank goodness, I then went through one, two and the final. Before I go on, I suppose I have to admit that I did fail my uh, my first year RICS exams. I can't remember which bit I went down on, but luckily I then went through one, two and the final um, after that. But just going back to what we were saying about the uh, the benefits that I believe there are to actually working while you are studying is I still remember to this day being able to put down on paper in my final exam examples of things that I'd come across in work. And I think being able to do that makes it a darn sight easy, easier than trying to just remember theoretical things that you've read or heard about. So I think there are some, there are some, I genuinely believe, some good benefits of uh, actually doing it the way that I did. I, mm. I regret that that way of doing it really isn't available for a lot of people these days. That's interesting because right now it's really hard for a lot of people to get work experience, to find a mentor that, you know, to get shadowing experience really hard and you're right when it comes to answering a question at an APC interview or you know or, or on paper when you're doing your, your submission it's a lot easier to talk about these things and to bring it to life if you've if you've actually done it 
you know yeah. it reminds me actually slightly different but when i i was a mature student when i did my estate management degree and then i got a graduate scheme job with a john lang and i remember on the first day some of the graduates absolutely panicking about picking up the phone and talking to people oh, yeah and i and i remember thinking geez am i <laughs> the next 18 months who am i with and am i really going to be worried about that you know but any kind of experience, life experience that you get you can bring to the role and, and and what we do. And I often talk about Sylvain being vocational yeah. and that's made me forget what I was going to say, <laughs> going to say now. Yeah. About being vocational and that all of a uh, level of maturity, you need a level of maturity, I think, to come into, into our profession and that comes through life experience. That is so, so right. And um, you mentioned the ability to pick up a phone and people might smile at that and say, oh, well, that's obvious. But, you know, I know from my own experience of interviewing people, from talking to companies and big firms who take on uh, and recruit people and to talking to graduates as well, you know, early stage professionals. It's all very well having a massive amount of technical knowledge, but we are in a people business at the end of the day. And if you haven't got those personal skills, the ability to deal with people properly, even as basically as picking up a telephone, then you've got a problem. So I, I absolutely agree with you. And uh, far too many people do say to me, I'll give you an example. I was speaking to some uh, young stage professionals not long ago, and uh, there, were, there were four uh, four people I was talking to. And I said, look, what's the one thing you think that your college, your university, the RICS, any other professional body, what, what greater help could they have given you? And they, all of them said, we could have done with further help on what they referred to as resilience training. Now, resilience training is about how to answer the phone, but it's also, as you say, the life skills bit. It's knowing how on earth, as a young stage professional, do you go to a block management meeting where you've got Colonel whatever who thinks he knows absolutely everything there is possibly to know and thinks that you're a young whippersnapper and you shouldn't be out there talking to him. How do you deal with that situation? And I think um, increasingly, I think that is something that as a profession, as businesses, that we've actually got to make sure that those coming into the profession are are equipped to be able to handle that sort of situation. You're right, but I don't necessarily think that it needs to be a surveying-related experience. By that, I mean, you know, I mean, for me to get my first experience of being involved in a board or a committee, I ran a local NCT group for about a year, and then my first board experience was as a school governor. You know, and that gave me experience of what it was like to being in a meeting, to, to have things to do, you know, to chair it occasionally. I got lots of experience outside because I couldn't get it within the industry. And, and everything that we do is a learning opportunity. And I think we absolutely underrate, particularly now, underrate the experience that you can bring to your work. It'll be interesting looking back, you know, in years to come, the, the different things that everybody has done through the pandemic, you know, yeah. um, uh, you know, the me doing a podcast, for goodness sake. But there are different things that we've all done, how we've adapted and, you know, put it on your CV. It's a great experience. Talk grab, about it. You know? yeah, grab any experience like that as well. And, you know, I'll be honest. Anybody who knew me back when I was an 18-year-old starting work back in 1973, I just don't think that they would have thought there was any chance of me being, whether it be quite happy having a chat with you, standing in front of a microphone or a television camera, or enjoying being on, on stage presenting and conferences and that sort of thing. I don't think they would have believed that. And a lot of that was the experience that I got not just through work, but it was through working as much as I was forced to get involved in things like auctioneering and standing up there. At a fairly early stage, I, I practiced auctioneering. In fact, I won what was then referred to as the RICS West Midlands Virgin Auctioneer of the Year. Believe it or not. <laughs> I don't think they get away with calling it these days. Anyway, that's what it was called back in the 70s. Uh, but it's that sort of thing. But also, I mentioned my, my wife. I met Laura because I actually started playing in a local university orchestra, even though I wasn't part of that university. She then came up to the university, uh, say, uh, a few months later. And that's how we met playing in the orchestra. But actually, 
playing in small groups gives you, you know, you've got to have that confidence to be able to do that. And two other just very quick examples. I remember recruiting two people where one of them, their CV was full of the fact that they were very heavily involved in amateur dramatics. Now, anybody who's able to stand up on stage and act has a lot going for them, I think. It's got mm. the confidence to do that. And the other young gentleman I remember taking on, he said, I, I'm not sure when I can come for the interview, Peter, because I'm so busy. He was working, actually, at a big car rental place. I won't name where, where it is. It starts with H, uh, on the outskirts of Oxford in those days. And um, I said, don't worry, I've got to come past. I'll, I'll pop in and see you. I popped in. He was busy with customers. In fact, he was having to deal with the most objectionable group of uh, people who were really giving him a very, very hard time. And as far as I could tell, totally unfairly. And I sat there listening to him for 20 minutes. And when he finished, he apologized. And I said, don't worry, I don't need to interview. When can you start? And again, it's just the way he was able to mm. deal with people. He was going to be a natural. And he was. He was one of my best uh, negotiators, as it turns out. Now, my top tip for recruiting people is to check out whether they're into baking and <laughs> bake-off because when offices come back, you want somebody who can bake the cakes on a Friday. <laughs> oh, well, are you, makes you're a big gonna, difference. You're never um, going to take me on, although I have to say, with lockdown and everything else, I can genuinely say I've been doing far more cooking than I've probably ever done in the past, but nothing like baking. That's too far too complicated. Well above dishwasher status. You, you mentioned um, auctioneering. What kind of things did you auction? Was that property oh. or was that anything well, anything? It was a, the vast majority that I was involved with then was property. You're right. Dealing with little little, little cottages right the way through to, to bigger properties as well. So it was mainly property, although I did get a little bit involved in some of the chattels auctions, but only really at a lower level, although I did have to manage and look after several um, auction rooms in the later in the 80s and in the 90s. And it's interesting, actually. Uh, I, I enjoy the auctioning. I, I, you know, I've done quite a few charity auctions and that sort of thing. That's another thing that people might want to get involved in. Mm. In a great experience. And to be honest, you know, nobody's paying any attention if you're going to make an idiot of yourself or whatever. They've usually had a few glasses of, uh, of lemonade before the evening starts. So don't be frightened. Have a go. Because you, you know what? I've got images in my head now of you being on Bargain Hunt. You'd be great <laughs> on Bargain Hunt. <laughs> well, if, not... you, if you know the direct, if you know the sort of the producers or the directors, pass do feel free to pass on my. <laughs> well, what you do is you apply, <laughs> and you get and you go on. But uh, yeah, I can just imagine you you doing that. That's become my um my lockdown go to because it's on seven uh, six days a week bargain hunts. I've discovered, and it really threw me when it was on on a Saturday. And I, I didn't know what day of the week it was. You talked about, you mentioned there the, the work that you do being on stage and TV and those things. Tell me a bit about how you got involved in the RICS and, and um, this, this professionalism in the, you know, professionalism profession. Tell me more about that. Well, actually, there's a connection back with uh, being uh, being on local radio, as it was then, I suppose, and also a bit of local television, that um, at one stage, even though I was nothing to do with the RICS, as a surveyor, I became the uh, the local one of the local spokespersons for the housing market in particular, in the Coventry and Warwickshire area. But rolling forward... After I'd done this this work as I um, became a partner, we sold out very briefly, I'll say this, we sold out to Black Horse Agencies that was owned by Lloyds Bank in 1987. They then in turn sold us to Bradford and Bingley. The advantage, uh, it's a bit of luck on my part, I suppose, is because uh, Black Horse Agents put, put, uh, Black Horse Agents put all the, par the partners on the same uh, level. So we were all exactly the same. A lot of my colleagues then decided to go and do their own thing or retire or whatever. And I found myself almost by default, suddenly looking after the whole lot of the local branches. And then they sold us to Bradford and Bingley. That was a really, must no, we won't talk about my um, save as you earn share save scheme with Bradford and Bingley. Well, I've still got the certificates and um, we'll have a burn sometime. Um, but anyway, in early 2000s, I then applied for the uh, position that was vacant as CEO at the National Association of Estate Agents. That's where I suppose most people got to know me. And of course, there was an awful lot of work there as far as um, presenting was concerned and television and, and, um, and, and radio work. And then, to be honest, I kept getting phone calls from the RICS saying, come and work for us, come work for us. And I kept saying, no, 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 there's a lot, lot more to do where I am. But I gave in to them what's now, gosh, nine, coming up towards 10 years ago. 
and uh, then joined them as the uh, what was then the global director for residential, trying to rebuild the residential side. I would say, I think it'd be fair to say the RICS had neglected a little bit, um, if not, some people would say more than a little bit, perhaps, over the decades. And that then sort of uh, turned in time into working within the standards department, and especially in the latter years, last few years, on professionalism, as you say. And I think, you know, we talked earlier about the fact that it's not just all about gaining experience on um, on surveying or anything like that. You can gain a broader experience. And I think the same applies to the work I was doing on the standard side, that when you're talking about professionalism and the umbrella of professionalism, I actually do not care what type of work you are doing. The basic requirements as to what means you are a professional doesn't alter. I don't care if you're selling houses, that you're climbing around roof spaces, that you're dealing with massive great portfolios or construction or whatever it will land or whatever it might be. And it actually goes way beyond the uh, estate agency or surveying profession as well. It, you know, it applies to a lot. So I've been heavily involved in that. And uh, it's been interesting. One of the things that's been interesting on this is finding out, first of all, how similar the issues are around the world. Uh, they just manifest themselves in different ways. But also, there is an ongoing issue, I think, that a lot of people don't necessarily give enough thought to what it really means to be a professional. They almost fall by default into falling foul of things like conflicts of interest, for instance, without actually realizing that they're not doing it deliberately. It's just that they haven't really thought through the process. So what does it mean to be a professional then? What is it in, in, in your view? I mean, yes, we've got standards. You know, and those standards are, you know, particularly the RICS or whatever member organisation you are, and they're there to support you. Is it just following those rules? I mean, what do you see as being a professional? No, I don't think it is just about following those rules because those rules are often just purely principles based and you have to know how to then apply them. You know, there's been quite a lot of research uh, in this. And one of the interesting things the RICS did actually using Ipsos Mori uh, a few years ago was interviewing a lot of professionals, non-professionals, the public, government, loads of different people as to what did they think it meant to be a professional. And, you know, at the end of the day, a lot of high level words came out, which are exactly the same that you and I have talked about for years. It's think about integrity, honesty, trust. But it's actually more than that. There's almost an assumption that if you're dealing with somebody um, in one of the professions, that they will they will know what they're talking about. So the technical side is almost taken for granted. But what came out very strongly with the public is they want to be able to trust the person that they are dealing with. And, you know, oh, I'm going back now decades ago, thinking back to, um, uh, to, to when I was out there sort of on the front line. At the end of the day, why did you tend to get an instruction to sell a property or whatever you were doing. I actually don't think that was necessarily much to do, something to do, but not all to do with the fee or anything like that. It's, do, did they trust you? And I still think that applies. Do they trust the person that they are dealing with? So trust, integrity, honesty, conflicts of interest, all these types of things came up. And of course, that in itself, Aaron, then gives you some issues because, you know, when I sit here and talk about professionalism and all these wonderful things, it's all very well and good. But, you know, at the end of the day, if you are having to uh, hit targets, if you're under a pressure from up on high to deliver, if you've got a client who turns around to you and says, well, Peter, I hear what you're saying, but really, could you have another naught onto that, uh, that that bottom line valuation. There's pressure there. There's, there's, there's one side, yes, you should, there's professionalism, but there's competition, if you like. And one of the talks that I've given over the years is uh, the biggest threat to professionalism is commercialism. You know, getting that balance right is really difficult. And I think, again, experience comes into it. But again, the young professionals who just at the start of their career often do say to me, you know, it's incredibly difficult that how you know, standing up to the client and being prepared to say, well, I'm sorry, but, you know, you're acting me, you're asking me to act in an unprofessional way. Do they walk away from that job? And how do they, how do they square that with their boss? And, and that's the sort of thing that people are faced. I've walked away from jobs before now because there are people in effect have been asking me to discriminate or break the law. But, you know, it's, it's not an easy thing to do. It's not at all. And it doesn't help that you talk about sort of commercialism. You know, I'd, I'd say it's sort of the culture of the business or organisation that you're in. 
it's sort of the the unwritten rules that you have in a business of, you know, yes, my door is always open. Come in and tell me, come and whistle blow, tell me whatever you need to, but you don't walk into that room because actually that door isn't open. And so I think there's a lot that bigger organisations can do in terms of culture and acting and being seen to act. Some of the things you've talked about there about integrity and honesty and trust and and how do you how do you build that with your clients? For me, I think, and this comes out on the mastermind actually that I run with for small businesses for, for SMEs about being authentic. If you understand why you're a surveyor, why you do what you do for your clients, the way that you do it works for you and for your clients. And that's not in competition with somebody else. You know, there's, we all have something unique to bring. And if you can be your authentic self, that's when you start to have the open conversations with your clients over what you will and won't do and why you can and can't do something. And it's those sort of conversations that then lead into trust because you're genuinely saying, do you know what? Yes, I I do this piece of work. I'm not going to do that. That's not what I do. It's not what I'm about. And it just starts with that, with being authentic and, and for me and sort of being true to yourself. Because when you know And it sounds a bit fluffy, but when you know things like your values, your personal values and what's important to you and why, it's a lot easier to have those boundaries in place of of, to know when to call things out or not, you know. But I think you've also just set out actually what should uh, not only mean you're a professional, but actually explains why you're actually better than people who don't act in that way. And there's got to be a, I know there's not just got to be, there is a value attached to that as well. It's not just about, you know, getting mm. getting the extra job, but there is a value attached to that. And one of the skills is actually selling that, isn't it? And uh, I have to say that we're not as good in this country as they are elsewhere around the world and actually being prepared to put our hand up and actually do exactly what you've just said and explain why we're better than average, why you should appoint me and why, as you say, sell it to your client and get them on your side. And that's, uh, gosh, 80% of the job, isn't it? Done. Yeah, I think I think though people get mistaken with sales and marketing, you know, and how we earn trust and the the fluffy words and the the pictures and images and things that we might use. When actually if you think about being more of a, you know, if I take blue box and the work I do at the Surveyor Hub, we're trying to be values driven. You know, that leads our business. There are, you know, we want our work to be fun. We want to think about leaving a legacy. You know, the stuff that we do want to do, don't want to do, community plays are really the integral part of that. But also what's important too is this things like the UN Sustainable Development Goals, which I know a lot of surveyors haven't even heard of and don't know how to integrate them that into their business. And you just start, you just start saying, actually, this is important to me. I'm going to find a way to factor that in and to talk about it. And that's what you do. You just start talking about it. So, you know, it, it comes back to, for me, that, that being authentic, not getting confused with the sales and marketing, but knowing that, you know, if you can talk about the way that you do things and understand why, that's the start. Let me ask you about professionalism, because if you're a, you know, a beacon for professionalism out there and you're on stage talking about being a professional, have you ever been unprofessional? Have you ever been caught short? I mean, have you ever felt the pressure of, I've got to be on point all the time and actually this is really hard? That's a very good question. I'm just racking my brains. Have I? To be honest, I'm not, somebody will probably listen to this and then remind me of something that I've forgotten about. Have I ever acted unprofessionally? I don't believe I have. I genuinely going to put my hand up and say, I don't believe I have. Uh, Have I made decisions that I then reflect on and think, well, maybe I could have done it better or maybe I am wrong in hindsight? Yes, but I think that's a different thing because I remember my old old dad saying, if you get to your professional life without making a mistake, you're probably not doing the job properly, you know, because you're, you're almost bound to. But honesty comes into it and I can genuinely say, I can think of two big mistakes where I was honest, I went straight to my boss, explained what had happened and uh, no issue. There wasn't an issue. It was accepted. I seem, I remember him turning around to me saying, well, you won't do that again, will you? And he was right because you learn You learn from that. That's the important bit. Don't just keep repeating the mistakes. As long as you learn it, put into practice, something's going to stop it happening again. So have I ever been, uh, no, I, I, I'm going to stick to my guns there. And so I don't think I've, I genuinely have acted unprofessionally. For me, professionalism is a journey. 
yes, we want to say, yes, I stand up and I'm a professional, but it's also saying that I'm a work in progress as well. Very much know, so. And that we, we continue to learn. You know, if you make a stand for something, you know, sometimes, we, yes, you've got to set the bar high, but you've got to accept that actually we're human as well. And we will make mistakes along the way. And with that, you will learn, learn resilience. So things for me that come to mind, you know, I, I try and make a stand for women and improving diversity. This podcast, you know, it's been really hard. I think we're nearly at 50% women with all the podcasts that I've done. But I did do when COVID and everything sort of hit back in March, we did a podcast and it was me and I think four men, four typical grey haired or no head white men. And that's something that I don't want to do. But in the moment, it just came about and I was called out on it. Rightly so. Will I do that again? No, I'll, I'll think more about it. And equally, I've been called out a few times on um, LinkedIn because I talk about again, being inclusive. And I don't care what flavor of surveyor you are, what membership you have or what level. But if you're in the business of helping people with their property and their lives, then I'm going to talk to you and find out more about about what you do. But there are rules. You know, we had some breaches in our community of of self-promotion and and things. Mm -hmm. And I threw someone out of the group and I was accused of not being inclusive. And it hurts. It hurts when you're trying to do something right. And I see that a lot with surveyors in trying to be professional, trying to get the T and C's right, trying to get the, you know, all the rules that the standards and the rules and the things that we that we have um, at our ICS, you know, and they'll be the same with other bodies. We want to get it right so much that we lose sight of, of what it means to get it right rather than just trying to to follow the rules. But again, the important bit, isn't it, is that even if you you say it's a learning curve, but the one thing that you can't do is then try to hide any mistake that you've made. And I think, again, you're feeling it often, I think, is, oh, gosh, perhaps nobody will find out about it or perhaps I can just cover it up or whatever. But no, you can't do that. That's the worst thing you should do or can do because you'll get caught out. You know, you will. And it will be looked on very badly compared with going to see your manager or your boss or your colleagues and talking it through in the first place. It's interesting you mentioned about how you feel that, you know, it hurts a little bit when you're doing your utmost, you're doing the best, and then you get um, sort of somebody making uh, comments. I mean, that's one of the things you we have to accept, of course, I suppose, is that on the one side, you know, we're out there talking, we're out there putting our heads above the, the parapet, standing up on stage, etc. You know, I've had loads of comments fed back um, on things that I've said or done or whatever. And it is easy. It is easy to actually take umbrage and to uh, think, oh, I'm going to I'm going to reply to that. That's one thing I've had to learn over the years. Um, you know, you just have to accept some of these things. If somebody's absolutely said something which is blatantly wrong, then I will probably pick up the phone and have a little chat with them. But otherwise, you just got to let it go over your head and just get on with it. Otherwise, don't be prepared to stick your head above the parapet, do a senior job. But if you're in a senior job, if you're prepared to do that, then I'm afraid, especially with social media and everything these days, it comes, as you say, with a little bit of a little unfair negative comment as well. And I think most of the time it is unfair, but occasionally, again, you should always look at it and reflect on it. And, you know, I say you've already, you still, you're still learning from uh, things and none of us, even at my old age, we're all, uh, we're all able to keep learning. In fact, you know, I do get cross when I've stood up there and somebody said to me, well, of course, I don't know why I'm here doing my CPD, Peter. There's actually no need for me to do my CPD. I've been doing this for 60 years. And if I don't know it now, and I'm thinking, well, to be honest, if you take that attitude, you probably should have retired ages ago because, uh, you know, you've got to keep learning. You've got to keep up to date, especially, especially at the moment with you know, fire safety and everything else that's going mm, on. Mm. It reminds me of um, many years ago, my, not necessarily in context, but when my little boy uh, was born and it was a thing to follow the Gina Ford method of trying to get your baby to sleep and into a routine. The, the, what, method? the what method? The, the Gina Ford. Oh, G- oh Gina yeah, Ford. Yeah, this might have passed you by, Peter. Yeah, well, it's not that. I'm just so much older, you see. That's <laughs> but it problem. was, you know, this like miracle book of how to, you know, look after your child. And, and you know, we look back now and think, God, that was a horrendous thing to put myself and my child through. Yeah. But now we know we do better. And I remember one of the mums saying to me, now we know we do better. And that's the same for, for any mistake that we made. And that's how we build resilience as well. You know, it's how we move forward. Let me ask you about 
working abroad. So with your your work on, on professionalism and the global role that you had at RICS, you, you jet-setted, <laughs> that's the right word, around the world and met lots of different people. How was that? Had you done that kind of work before? What was that like? As CEO of the National Association of Estate Agents, I'd been a little exposed to um, other ways of working, especially um, the relationship with the National Association of Realtors in the US, but not a lot else. But I think one of the things, I should say, sounds wonderful jet setting around the world. It's not always as glamorous as people that think it is. sarcasm. <laughs> sitting in row, row Z uh, you know, at the back of a plane somewhere. But um, yeah, no, I, I've been lucky. I've been able to, to experience a number of different ways of working, a number of different cultures, etc. I'll tell you one of the interesting things, though, that, that, that I found, I touched on this slightly earlier, is that at the end of the day, I found it doesn't matter where you are in the world, the, the professionalism means the same thing. What it might do is come across in slightly different ways. And that's one of the things you have to learn. You know, it's not necessarily just because that's the way we do it in the Western Hemisphere. Is that always the right way to doing it? Now, for instance, when I, I'm just jumping on something else now, when I was chair of the International Ethics Standard, which was uh, set up a few years ago, we gave instructions to an independent committee um, to go out and explore the world of ethics, not just in our business, but you know everything. And I remember clearly saying to them, "Yes, obviously you'll be looking at the way we look at ethics in the, in the West, but you know we could learn probably learn something about ethical behaviour from some of the Eastern philosophies and that sort of thing." And they had a good look at everything. But at the end of the day, what I found as I've gone around the world is to say the issues, the problems, whether it be conflicts of interest, whether it be integrity, whatever it might be, those issues are generally almost all the same. It's just the way they the way they come about are different. And, uh, you know, it, it's interesting. One of the things I've found and the challenges I've had is putting these high-level principles, ethical behavior, integrity, uh, trust, et cetera, et cetera, that means different things in different countries. And what you can't do and what you should never do and what any of us will fail is if we try to do is to go to wherever it else is around the world and try and suggest for one moment that the way we do it is best. Now, that's, well, that's very colonial, isn't it? And we've it is. And, you, know, you can't do it. You <laughs> cannot do it. You know, and, uh, you know, I remember having, I, I thoroughly enjoyed my trips to Brazil, for instance. Now, you know, you forget that it wasn't many years ago when uh, Brazil was not an outward looking country. It was a very inward looking country with a military dictatorship, you know, and uh, they're in a different position to, uh, to, to, to where, for instance, we are. But if I'd have gone out there saying, this is the way you have to do it. This is the RICS say you must do it this way, et cetera, et cetera. There would have been a problem. Now, what you actually have to do is obviously, if you're taking, doesn't matter if it's RICS or anybody else's, but if you've got a global set of standards that any member, regardless of where they are in the world, has to meet, then clearly you don't just say, oh, it's okay just because you're working in X, Y, and Z. Well, you can forget about those. What you've got to look at is, okay, the businesses are different. The way people do business is different. How do they therefore interpret that principle-based rule into their, into their bit? Now, give me one little example. You know, I was talking about conflicts of interest and we were talking about bribery and everything else. And I was in... A country in the Middle East. And I was talking to, in fact, people from the UK and America. And they said, well, Peter, you do realise that over here, if you've done a decent job, you might well be given a Rolex watch as a thank you. And I went, uh, well, that doesn't quite fit into the... Uh, <laughs> An RICS policy, for instance, that says <laughs> employee, and as people know, I've, I've now left the RICS, but no, they've got a strict policy there. Mm. If you receive any gift whatsoever, you have to log it down. And if it, no, a bottle of wine at sort of £4.50 is okay, but if you're starting to get expensive bottles of wine, there's no way. But you can't just say no when you're in India or China. Because it's totally, totally, it would be an affrontery to them. They would insult them if you weren't prepared to do it. Now, what they do, of course, is actually only give you low value items, which is fine. So a little silver. So, so they give you fake Rolexes then. Exactly. <laughs> but what you can't do is say no. 
Mm. You know, on the other hand, you know, if you're getting offered tickets all the time to uh, see, well, I was going to say you won't get them at the moment, but sort of go and see Rugger at Wimbledon, uh, Wimbledon, Rugger at Twickenham or or Wimbledon uh, Tennis or whatever, you've got to be very careful about that. You first of all must log it down. And every company should have, I hope they all have, everybody listening, you should have had a register. You should be totally transparent about all of this. And uh, uh, there's been plenty of times when something's arrived through the post uh, to say thank you very much, and uh, I've not accepted it, or at the very least, I put it into the first auction I can, or for Lan Hart or the RICS charity, whatever it might be. So uh, just be careful, because that's one of the things again that goes back to we were talking about earlier about you no know, transparency. What's the consumer? What are the public looking for in a professional? One of the questions that's or comments that comes up quite a lot is why does the RICS need to be global? From what you've just described there, actually, is because we're learning things from other economies, other countries, other ways of doing things. But the gap between what goes on globally as, a, as an institution or an industry, right the way back to the jobbing surveyor on the ground, you know, doing yeah. a mortgage val on a two-bed semi in Rygate, there's a huge gap there is, and that is often a question that I've been asked when I've been out there you know, face-to-face talking to, to surveyors. And they say, well, that's all very well and good. Very nice to know, Peter, but it doesn't help me one iota, as you say, to uh, mm-hmm. the, uh, the jobbing surveyor in, in wherever. I actually disagree with that. Not only can we learn from others, but I think people, let's talk about RICS for the moment, people really, really underestimate, and this includes the RICS as well, underestimate, I believe, the value of that little lion symbol, the RICS symbol, around the world. We just don't realise how much that is looked at and looked up to. And there is a real desire in many parts of the world to actually get RICS to help improve. In fact, I can tell you RICS could be involved in massive, massive more and greater numbers of countries than they they are. And correctly, you can't do everything. Mm-hmm. And maybe there's a you know, review going on at the moment. And with everything else that's going on, maybe they'll they'll pull back slightly on some of these things. But you know, at the end of the day, if you are a professional body, whether it be surveying, architects, engineers, lawyers, whoever, then part of that duty, I would have thought, is actually trying to improve the profession wherever you are. Now, also need to bear in mind that there are very few countries in the world where there are not surveyors out there. And again, we talked right at at the start, talked about my start of the career. You know, there were very few opportunities then to actually go and work abroad. Now, and this is one of the brilliant things, you know, surveyors are recognised in many, many countries. You know, we've got surveyors in outer Mongolia. Which sounds Uh, like a joke. (laughs) Well, if they, it, it always, uh, it, uh, I, I don't mind saying to you that the, the, the member of the member in uh, Mongolia, out of Mongolia, works for his own company. It's called Mad Investments. I think that's brilliant. Mad Investments. <laughs> um, but uh, I think it was the name of the company. But you know, at the end of the day, we've, there are surveyors out there in the vast majority of countries around the world, and they need help and advice. So it's not just about the UK. Although you have to always remember that still the majority of surveyors are based in the UK. Bringing it around full circle, though, my answer to that person who said, well, why why do we bother around the world, is if that little symbol, if the RICS credibility around the world or any other professional body's credibility can be raised from everything that's being done, you ought to be proud of that working in the UK. And again, you said, you know, that's selling yourself and everything else. And, and again, you know, why should you employ, why shouldn't you employ me as a surveyor? Why not? What, what's so important about that? And again, I think the fact that if you are proud of what your professional body is trying to do, if you are proud as you should be of the work that you did to get that qualification in the first place, then again, anything that could be done to raise the profile, I would have thought has got to be all for the good, but has to be within reason. I understand where you're coming from on that. And, and I, I agree with those um, those comments. I think also it's recognising what, what's the purpose of the profession. You know, what's mm. the purpose? And it comes back to the, you know, why are we surveyors and valuers? And that's at the heart of it because we want to help people with their homes, their lives, their, the built environment, the way that we, we live and work. And it's coming back back to that. Um, just before we finish off, I just want to ask you about Roper 
Can you, again, there'll be some students and, and things listening. Can you explain what ROPER is? Yes, certainly. I mean, obviously, I'm, uh, I have to admit and, and just confirm I'm, I'm no longer heavily involved in ROPER because obviously having left the RICS, but I can bring you up to date. Uh, and I interviewed Baroness Hayter, Diane Hayter, at the, as part of the IRPM virtual conference only a couple of weeks ago. And she was on that and uh, she's looking after a part of that. So let's go back a bit. You know, I'm one of those who for decades, and I'm not the only one, has been saying it is a crazy situation that when you are dealing with people's biggest asset, that there is nothing to stop anybody setting themselves up, regardless of their qualifications or lack of them or experience or whatever else. Is that the right thing? When I've talked about this at various places around the world, and especially if the speech is being translated into different languages and people are sitting there wearing their headphones, when I say, and of course in the in, the, in England, in the UK, you can set up with no qualifications, no experience, etc. And I can tell when it's being translated because it either giggles or gasps going on around and, the audience. And that's set up as what, a surveyor or set up as an estate agent? Uh, uh, that would be actually as a state agent, to be fair, yeah. that. So with Roper, the government came to the decision that actually, no, that was not right, that agents, so we're talking about sales agents, lettings agents, block managing agents, should have to meet minimum competency standards and should be better regulated. And uh, they set Lord Best the task of uh, carrying out research into this and producing a paper which came out last year, even the year before. Now, gosh, I'm losing track of time now. And he published that, having spent a lot of time talking to many, many people inside and outside the industry. And the recommendations from him were not, I'm not going to quote all of them, but basically he said, yes, every person involved in this sales, lettings or block management business should have minimum qualifications. And they set out in that what perhaps the minimum qualification should be. Second thing he said was that there was a plethora of standards out there at the moment, and there should be a single, whether it be called a standard or a code or whatever, there should be a single code. He also accepted that it would be silly to start from scratch. There was some good stuff out there at the moment. Therefore, perhaps it was more a question of bringing everything together and updating it. The third very important thing he came out and said was that there should be an independent regulator in charge of the sector who would own that code we just I just talked about or the standard and presumably would also have the power to remove a, a license from somebody who had been given it so that was the proposal the report was published and government have actually still got to come back and comment on that and there's a bit of a problem on on that obviously with with covid and everything else at the moment quite reasonably i suppose government have got other things on their mind so as Baroness Dan Hayter put it the other week, the Roper report's a little bit on the back burner, but what the industry decided, rightly or wrongly, and I think absolutely correctly, was rather than just sitting back, twiddling your thumbs and waiting for something to happen, would, should we not try and have a go at at least putting together the standards bit, that code for the industry based on the Roper report, the Regulation of Property Agents report? And Lord Best set out what he believed should be in a high-level code, and then but the idea is beneath that you'd have subcodes or call them chapters, whatever you want, that would specifically deal with the sales, the lettings, the, the block management side. And so work has been going on and is ongoing. I believe that the idea is, is that a document will eventually be produced. The industry could decide, well, actually, why don't we adopt that now rather than waiting? But at the very least, there is then a document that could go to any potential future regulator who could, of course, tear it up and throw it in the bin. But hopefully they would turn around and say, well, I tell you what, thank you. That is something I can mm. work with. Might need tweaking here and there. So pleased to say that the industry is not just sitting back and just waiting and uh, is, uh, is getting on with it in various little bits. But when will Roper come in? Thanks to COVID, not nearly as quickly as I had hoped it might. Uh, I failed in my mission to get this in before I retired. 
uh, which is why I've actually only gone semi-retired. I'm still holding up hope that it might come in. But I think the general feeling at the moment, um, Aaron, is it's going to be several years yet. There's still a lot of water to go under the bridge. People still have lots of questions about should there be grandfathering with qualifications? Shouldn't there be? What's this standard going to look like? What's the regulator going to do? Who's going to pay for the regulator, et cetera, et cetera. So a, a lot of work to be done yet. And I've got this horrible feeling I might be fully retired before it comes in. But at least it's going in the right direction and government recognise there are some issues out there that need addressing. Not sure that was a very quick answer, I'm afraid. I didn't expect a quick answer, Peter. <laughs> like I said at the start. No, but that's really useful and, and insightful for those who don't know about it. I think the thing for me that comes to mind is there's a very famous quote by a tennis player called Arthur Ashe. And he said, start where you are, use what you have, do what you can. And in putting, you know, standards and, and, and guidance like this together, yes, it's not been adopted. Yes, it's not been implemented. It's, you know, very complicated when you start looking at the detail of things. But that's not to say that good ideas can't be implemented now. There'll be some good stuff that comes out of that. And waiting for the go ahead for when it's mandatory is what benefit is that going to be to your customers and your clients? And so from, from me, from a customer experience point of view, if it's something that you can implement now and it helps and makes a difference, then, you know, why wouldn't you do it? That's the difference between a business that's run in terms of being values driven versus commercials. So oh, it's complicated and expensive to do. You just start where you are, use what you have, do what you can, adopt a few of the things and it starts change and starts to happen. There's nothing to stop an individual firm looking at a draft standard or whatever else and say, I'll tell you what, that would look good in our own business model. And yeah. I, I absolutely agree with you. And the one thing that's happening, of course, one of the things that's happening because of the virus is that people are having to move very quickly to look at different business models, how they're going to survive, how they're going to operate, etc. And I'm excited by that because I see some really good examples out there of people who are not just sticking their head in the sand, but are actually saying, you know, in the right way, whether it be using IT, um, AV, uh, all, the, all the digital stuff that's out there, all the prop tech. And it's not just all about that because, um, you know, prop tech, again, is all very well and good, but it's a tool. And it's a tool that can really improve your business, but it's a tool. So, yeah, I agree with you. You know, don't just sit there just thinking, just think, right, okay, is there stuff here that I can use? Even if you only take one or two little things from it, maybe there's something that just puts you a little bit above Fred down the road. Absolutely. Peter, it's been a pleasure to talk to you today. Thank you ever so much for your time. Uh, pleasure. Thank you very much for inviting me. So thanks for listening to today's podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. I really do love hearing your feedback. So please feel free to drop me a message. You can email me at marion.ellis at blueboxpartners.com or you can find me on social media at Marion Surveyor.